Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I think comedy should be whatever's funny to the performer. The audience can decide whether they want to laugh or not. I don't think any performer should be changing what they do and don't say. But I'll always be a supporter of a comedian saying whatever the hell they do, whatever want to come out their mouth, say that shit. I'm Justin Jay. As a photographer, I've gotten to shoot rock stars, hip-hop moguls, world-class athletes, and some other truly extraordinary subjects. I'm fascinated by the backstories and life experiences that help shape these compelling people. The right photograph can reveal quite a lot about someone, but some stories can't be told with just a picture. Sometimes you need to sit down, listen, and dig a little deeper. This is The Plug. At its core, stand-up comedy is about making people laugh. But certain comics are willing to go beyond the punchline and explore areas that are dangerous, complex, and controversial. It can be a risky endeavor and the stakes are high, but when it's executed in a thought-provoking way with empathy, compassion, and heart, it has the unique potential to transcend cultural divisions and political chasms. Today's guest is a multi-talented comedian who's not afraid to tackle sensitive issues related to race or social class. He's appeared on The Daily Show, hosted the prestigious White House Correspondents' Dinner, and has garnered critical acclaim for his numerous stand-up specials. His latest special, Imperfect Messenger, fearlessly delves into topics such as Confederate pride, slavery, and criminal justice reform. He skillfully blends humor, personal anecdotes and perspective in a way that resonates with a wide audience and sparks meaningful dialogue. 
It's a masterclass on how comedy can be a tool not just to entertain, but to unify and inspire conversation. So why does he think the character Jack Bauer from the TV show 24 perfectly encapsulates what it's like to be in the entertainment business? We'll find out as we sit down for a chat with the man behind Comedy Central's all-time highest rated original stand-up premiere. Today, writer, actor, comedian, and brilliant social critic, Mr. Roy Wood Jr. Oh yeah, I'm good to go, brother. Okay. Roy Wood Jr., thank you so much for taking the time to sit down, man. It's great to see you. Man, good to see you. How you been? I'm good. I'm good. You, uh, you've had quite a year. You uh, guest hosted The Daily Show. You hosted the White House Correspondents' Dinner. You got a big tour coming up. Yeah. I mean, you you kind of been plugging away at the stand-up game for quite some time. But, I mean, do you get the sense that does this year feel a little different for you? Like, are you optimistic about what's going to happen? I, I mean, this is going to sound very cliched and canned, but honestly, stand-up is high tide, low tide. You just have to keep doing well. So you have a couple of good hits. It's like baseball. There's streaks and there's slumps. You know, I'm in a little bit of a streak right now, but, you know, I've been in slumps before, and I know what that's like. So the only difference is that in real life, a slump means you may or may not be able to pay your bills. So I try my best to make sure that whatever I'm doing is from a space of building my brand because, you know, a writer strike a hit. You know, people be talking about, hosting the daily show there might not be no tv no more at the end of this strike you know we don't know what's gonna happen so i'm proud of what i've done but it does not i'm not gonna rest on that i still need to go out and be funny i'm going on tour this summer so the jokes need to be sharp so it's back to the clubs that was nice kicking it it's at about a bunch the next of, one yeah, not the previous one yeah it's literally the next mission there's The season three ending of 24 is so fucking perfect to explain what stand-up comedy is. And Kiefer Sutherland's character, Jack Bauer, he's just saved the world. He's just done the most amazing, miraculous thing that you could ever, like no one else could have done it. How did you beat the odds? How did you do it? And he goes and sits in his car and he cries from the stress of the day. And while he's crying, somebody walkie-talkies him. Hey, Jack, we need you for the next whatever the hell is going on. And he just fucking wipes it to, this is Jack Bauer, I'm on the way. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how the the season three ends of 24. And that's literally what entertainment is. Wow. Well, I want to ask you about the correspondence dinner for a second. you know, yeah. it must have been a really unique audience because, I mean, A, you got President Biden right there in front of you, and then some of the other people that you want to kind of roast or do topical humor about, they're also in the room. But it's also famously the same room where a few years ago, Seth Meyers eviscerated Donald Trump right to his face, you know, and being the petty, <laughs> vindictive man that he is, rumor has it, that's what kind of set the spark for him to want to become president and, and make a run for it. Did you feel the history well and the gravity played. of that when you stepped to the mic of like this fucking crazy chapter that that started right there in that room? No, I didn't feel any of that. To me, it was just do your jokes, do your job. The idea that my performance could trigger apocalyptic policies <laughs> is 
a lot of weight to put on a single joke. I do not believe that any one joke can change everything. It might be able to change the minds of people who can then go out and be active and change things. But like, I, like I wasn't thinking, I better not talk about Ron DeSantis because then he going to really be president. Like, <laughs> no, the joke is the joke. We have to address what's going on in the country. And so that's what I did. But nah, I didn't really think about it like that. I mean, I think in an ideal world, you would be able to use comedy as a device for people to change their mind. And, you know, you present the joke, you put it in a unique way and and it's humorous and it's thoughtful and it's cogent. And ideally, in theory, the audience would take that in and accept the logic and maybe be open to changing their mind. But, you know... As the the great Neil Brennan once said, that's like bringing facts to a feelings fight, you know? And so, I mean, do you ever, do you, do you get the sense that you've ever actually been able to move the needle with, with some of your comedy or do you ever, do you ever get cynical that you're just kind of preaching to the choir, albeit in a very funny way? I think the job of a comedian is to broadcast what's happening. What happens on the other side of that is out of our control. I think anybody who thinks that their words are these omnipotent things that will change everything, you know, look at how hard Jon Stewart has had to fight for something as simple and bipartisan as the Zadroga Act. Just, hey, if you're a firefighter and you're down at ground zero, you deserve health care until you die. Just a basic thing. You think How it would be irrefutable. John Stewart, yeah, to the point where John Stewart has lost, he's not even trying to be funny about the Zadroga shit anymore, is what I'm trying to say. He's abandoned humor as an effective tool, and now he's like straight, I'm going to hit you with a sh- with shame sledgehammer and try and get you to act right. So... I don't I don't think about my material in the sense of did, did this rock make a dent in the thing? It's just my job to present the stuff and what happens on the other side of it. Because when you start getting into cause, cause and effect of your jokes, then for me, I feel like I get more detached from just trying to be funny, which is what I set out to be, and that was the original goal. So... You know, it's it's nice when you get an email from someone that's on the right side of an issue going, thank you, we're down here doing this stuff, appreciate you for amplifying. You know, that helps me keep going. You know, The Daily Show, I enjoy being more of a conduit for people who don't have access to a camera and a microphone. Like, that's, to me, more rewarding than telling the joke in the studio. I'd much rather be out in the field following somebody that's actually doing the work. Well, I want to ask you about The Daily Show for a second, because it it seems like it would be very easy to make comedy about Trump and the MAGA Republicans, because the hypocrisy is just so flagrant and obvious. But it it, it seems also that sometimes the progressives have a really difficult time being forced to take an honest and critical view about some things that maybe aren't in order in their house as well. You know, and in these kind of tribal times that we live in, it's easy to fall into this mindset that any comedy that's critical of the Democrats or any comedy that's critical of Biden is somehow disloyal or that you're helping the other side. You know, I mean, to take a look at like Bill Maher, for instance, I don't think his disdain for Trump and for the Republicans is any secret, but he's cut a lot of shit from the left by calling out some things that he thinks are not really in order with some of the progressives. And, you know, with that in mind, I'm wondering about with The Daily Show, a lot of people tune into that show for 
expecting a very particular political viewpoint. And I'm wondering, have you noticed any internal conflicts while you work in there for pieces that were pitched that were very critical of the left? No, you don't get controversy for pitching things that are critical of the left. I think the issue within our show is that you have to have nuance in why you're doing anything. Like if you look at what Jordan Klepper does with fingering the pulse that he goes out and he talks to constituents. That's essentially a constituent-based segment. It's more conversational, and you're giving people an opportunity to present how and why they view something. Whereas if you look at a studio segment, there has to be a little bit more nuance. If you're just going to go... Like if we're going to use Marr, Bill Marr as an example. Bill Marr had a segment on his show not too long ago about Dianne Feinstein. This is back when she was st- she had yet to return yeah. to chambers to start voting again. He, as a singular person, is able to attack that from the viewpoint that he best sees fit. Whereas a correspondent, you are also, in a way, honoring the viewpoint of the host. And so, you know, it's a little weird and different for us now because we have a bunch of guest hosts. So the show has a North Star, but there's also the opinions of the guests. And sometimes a lot of the stuff that people want to criticize the left about, it might be something that the guests really don't want to get into. You know, for me, with my guest hosting week, I'm just more of an issue-driven person than I am attacking people. I just don't feel like, I feel like people change, the issues stay the same. So, you know, for, you know, you get this one deep dive segment called Long Story Short, and you can go into whatever you want to talk about, about people. But for me, I just wanted to talk about colleges. Yeah. I just wanted to talk about the price of education in that institution. I think corporations are a far larger detriment to this country than politicians. Most of the politics in this country are byproducts of the ideology of corporations that fund the politicians who make the policies. So, I don't know. Like Even with the correspondence dinner, I knew that there would be certain jokes that, that the left wouldn't be feeling, but I can't go up there and not acknowledge Joe Biden and documents and not make a joke about that. I can't. I can't ignore his age and that being a topic of conversation with regards to re-election. Now, how do I make that funny? That's a separate issue. But I think what a lot of people are talking about is figuring out how do you not turn this into a joke that people use as ammunition to either, it's confirmation bias. So I'm going to take anything you joke about, and if I want to be offended, I'm going to be offended. I'm going to say you were ageist. I'm going to say you were mean. I did a school shooting joke, and it was strictly a school shooting joke, but somehow that joke has come out as me being pro-trans. And it's like, well, if that's what you took from the setup, then you missed the joke. Like that, like you're assigning all of this extra shit to jokes, and it's like sometimes it's just a joke. And there's certain topics, whether it's like, you know, Trump and DeSantis, the person and the topic are the same thing. They're so intertwined. You can't really joke about the policies without the person because they are, they're, they purposefully made them intertwined. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah it, it, it's, it's one of those things where you have no choice but to kind of dabble in both. You know, you don't, you don't, you don't have a choice these days. Was, was it a, a very different experience guest hosting as opposed to being, a correspondent? It was easier. 
like in the sense that, and, I, and I'm not saying that hosting some easy thing to do, it's very difficult, but in terms of the comedic ideology, as a correspondent, you get to just do jokes, which in theory is easy. But if you want to add feeling or emotions or opinions, you're generally not given that runway because there's no time. But as a host, you get to add all of these other intangible prisms to how you feel about something and not just solely make it funny. And I enjoyed that because, you know, that's what I try to do with my stand-up. I try to make some of it funny, but also at the core, I'm trying to make people feel good. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Do you feel that it's more difficult or that there's more potential for blowback as a black comedian doing content that maybe is critical of the black community or as a progressive that's doing content that's critical of the left? Hmm. What's more dangerous or what leaves you more open to criticism? I think black on black. I think if you are critical of the left but still somehow showing support of the left, then you probably still have some degree of an in or there will still be people that will give you audience or whatever. Whereas if you're being critical of black people, you got to be very careful about that, bro, because people are going to take that and weaponize that who, who have far more sinister intentions to black people. So that's something you gotta you gotta be you gotta be very careful about that. Yeah. You know, and you don't know what people are going to use, and you know that's why, like you know, in black circles, you know, there's a saying where you know some stuff is just family business. Certain things you just don't bring out into the mainstream and have a discussion about because within our community, I think that there are other people that use those conversations to help justify you know policy. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I recently, I rewatched Imperfect Messenger recently. And I have to say, I think that's one of the most compassionate and honest and just generally like funniest stand-up specials that I've seen in a very long time. Like I, I it's bravo. It's a fantastic stand-up special. Thank you. And, and then I would actually, I would place it in, in, you know, the same category in the same classes, like as a Chris Rock or a Dave Chappelle or a Richard Pryor in terms of presenting a black perspective in a very thought-provoking way, you know. But at the same time, I know on that same topic, both Chappelle and Chris Rock have been really vocal about some of the bits that they've done over the course of their career that they're very uncomfortable with the way that they've been embraced by certain white white audiences, whether that's because they're <laughs> laughing maybe for the wrong reason or because, like you said, they've weaponized that critique and used it to to justify or reinforce like existing prejudices that they've already had. I mean, is that something that you think about when when you're writing your material? Yeah, I think about how can this be misunderstood? That's how I think of most jokes now. And you're not going to be bulletproof on that, but you just have to figure out a way. But it also part of that process is... To me, part of that process is about making sure that you're running these jokes and these perspectives in front of black audiences. You're going to be talking about a group of people or you're going to be bringing an issue to a group of people. Then you need to be talking about that in front of those people because that the reaction, the visceral reaction from audiences is going to help shape the bit 
to make it right for television so you can be more precise. So you got to step on landmines a couple of times to get to the right place. You know, there's a bit, it's not even, I won't even do the joke, but within Imperfect Messenger, the part where I talk about prison reform and this idea that we want nonviolent drug offenders to get out early and, oh, it's just weed. You should be free. Okay, cool. But there's also violent offenders who got too much time. And that's not part of the conversation. But to me, it should be. And that's not to belittle, oh, you you got caught with an ounce of weed and you're still in jail and weed is legal. Okay, yeah, let him out. But also that guy that did 20 years for a stabbing who probably should have gotten five, he should get out too. But that guy did a lot of damage in the black community. So screw him, you know, like that. That dynamic in that conversation, you know, that it's and and ultimately that bit was going a different way. And then I kind of got into a back and forth with an audience member because, you know, for, for your listeners who don't know, you know, I have a friend that was at a robbery that turned into a murder. He was not inside. He got charged with murder. I don't agree with that law. I don't think that law is right. I, nah, you're just not going to yeah. But what I learned over the course of presenting that material to audiences who some of those people have lost family members to domestic, to domestic issues, to murder, to guns and knife violence, right? I discovered, oh, it's not even my place to have an opinion on this. This is a conversation that should be had strictly with victims and lawmakers, me, the outsider, who's never lost someone, shouldn't even be talking about it. And that discovery through the joke bombing <laughs> a couple of times, I discovered that was the joke and that was the landing point to end on. And that's what I put on television. So you have to be able to step in it. The issue now is that the internet and camera phones have eliminated the the incubation period needed for a joke to grow from the wrong place to the right place. We're not extended that anymore as performers. I mean, I think that's one of the things that I appreciated most about Imperfect Messenger is that it just it had this sense of of compassion and 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 discovery and learning, and it it ended on kind of on a very emotional note without sounding preachy. It didn't end on a big laugh and a big callback, but I think that story, it's, it's wonderful to hear the progression of how that bit came to be because it was really, it was, it was a really emotional moment of that special. Yeah, and that was like really where I was trying to get to is that, you know, even myself, I'm not perfect in the things that I'm, you know, crusading for and fighting for and trying to make right. Um, you know, for most people, if you were to ask them one of their biggest fears, I think the fear of public speaking would rank right up there for most people or a lot of people. For somebody who basically does that for a living, I'm wondering, do you have a particular moment in a set, especially when it's a really high stakes set, like maybe the White House Correspondence Dinner or you're taping a special, is there a particular moment where you really feel that you've got the audience or that your swagger kicks in. It kind of make almost liken it to that moment in The Wizard of Oz when everything turns from black and white to color. Like, is that an apt analogy? Like, mm, you don't want to get too arrogant, but you, you definitely know when, okay, I know what I'm doing here. 
and I'm confident in the rest of my material. For the correspondence dinner, it was the Dominion voting joke, which was, I think, the third joke. So when that landed, you kind of got the sense that the the butterflies disappear and it turns a little bit more into like fun instead of torture? Yeah, well, not fun, but just, okay, you know what you're doing, now execute. So we're not, the boat's not taking on water, now we can paddle. You know, you've gotten that first, it's like a quarterback, you get that first completion in the Super Bowl. And now you're just playing football again. Because uh, the, the Joe Biden joke, the first joke where I hand him the classified documents, that wasn't a joke that I ran in the comedy clubs. You know, that was just one that I just kind of threw out there. <laughs> you know, and it worked. Did you tailor that set specifically to, I mean, obviously you can't just come right out and go in on Joe Biden? Like, did you have to kind of find some common ground? I mean, did, was there a lot of intention in terms of finding some jokes that you can kind of Trojan horse your way into some material that might be a little bit more divisive later on in the well, set? Well, yeah, I had to because they don't know me, so I can't come out there swinging like that because they're yeah. not going to go, who the hell does this guy think he is coming in our house and disrespecting us? So the first joke is on Biden. He's the most powerful person in the room. The next two jokes... One is a fear-based joke. The second one is the second joke is a fear joke. The third joke is self-deprecation. So at that point, I still haven't gone at anyone in the room or anything that no sacred cows at that point. And Biden thankfully did well, which helped make the document joke work because it was already a jovial, jokey kind of and he joked with me with the dark Brandon thing. So in a weird way, there's rapport. There's not a standoffish power dynamic happening between me and the president. So then the second joke is complimenting the audience and saying you got money from the Fox Dominion lawsuit. I'm scared of Dominion. I love Dominion. I don't want Dominion to sue me. Third joke is I, I know you all think I'm Kenan Thompson. I'm not. So at that point from a, like if you think about this like psychology, I'm being gracious. And then we start getting into, I think George Santos was the next one. And then from Santos, we went Tucker Carlson, Don Lemon. And that's more community bashing. You know, hey, don't we all not like these people? Joke, joke, joke. Sneak in a little bit of stuff about CNN still being inconsistent and having, like, like that, and then that's where we started to slowly get into Don Lemon, Tucker Carlson. Yeah. Did you have a pivot in your back pocket if Biden didn't take that joke as graciously as he did? No. Would that have changed things? No. No. The jokes were the jokes at that point. I could make a comment on him not not liking the joke, you know, it's okay. I know no. I know nobody likes it when they when they find their documents. You know, leaving their documents around. You know, it's like I tell you what, I'm gonna keep this one and sell it to Russia or you know whatever. But if that joke doesn't do well, then you just play it off like it was never intended to be a joke. Because the next thing out of my mouth was, "Hello, how are you doing?" Yeah. I, I saw you perform at at City Winery last year, and you told a really personal story about your experience appearing on the PBS show, Finding Your Roots, and you found out some really kind of 
disturbing and, and, and personal information about your father in that show. And also I've noticed in Imperfect Messenger and a lot of your, a lot of your stand-up, there's a lot of real personal material in there. And, and I'm wondering, you know, where does that come from? Like, do you find it cathartic to stand and, and, and tell maybe painful or difficult stories in front of groups of strangers? Or is it more simple than that? Is it just that, you know, great writers write what they know? Yeah, I think it's cathartic in a way. Like, I'm not necessarily trying to do, like, group therapy and turn the audience into my therapist. But, you know, this is what's interesting to me. And it's dark and it's complicated. And I think that's what's relatable. Yeah. I mean, but I'm saying you, you, could, you could definitely choose to not do comedy that comes from a place of, of, of pain or personal exploration. But, but you do, you know. So, I mean, you must get something out of that. Yeah, yeah, you're right what you know. I mean, it's it's cool to talk about. It's just talking it through. To me, even ultimately with the material about my father, it's just using it as a springboard to make the point to the audience that old people should be passing down their fears and their traumas to their children, not just food recipes. Tell me what you're going through mentally. Because their chances are one of your descendants is going through it too. And they need some ideas on what the hell is going on in their head. So you might be able to help your family start at second base in their healing process or something. I'm curious, was that something that you have used since then? Has that become part of your act? Or is that something that you were just really like working out because it was, it was, it was front and center in your mind and it, you just I was it. still working that out. I think you're talking about the Neil Brennan show, which was a show specifically where Neil and I agreed that we would only do new stuff and stuff that just really hadn't been fleshed out yet. That's a joke that I'm not even touring with right now this summer. Like that's a bit that I really want to sit on for my for one of my hour specials. My next run of hour specials is going to be a trilogy about fatherhood. And that's definitely one of the stories that's going to be in there somehow. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why I really appreciated and enjoyed that particular set is because you really got a sense that you were seeing the process unfold. And it wasn't just set up, set up punchline. It was material that was, that was fresh and new and, and it really meant something to you. I mean, there was a lot of heart in that set, but I mean, it was funny, obviously, but it was really, it was fascinating getting to see the, the process unfold. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we always like to, to end this podcast by asking the guests to, to plug something that they're not personally involved in that they feel isn't getting enough shine, whether it's like a TV show, a movie, a book, a comic, a social cause. Is there something you want to shout out and uh, give some attention to? Bumpkiss on Peacock. Pete Davidson is a maniac. That shit is hilarious. I haven't seen that yet. I'll check that out. I'm not in it. I am not connected to it in any shape, form, or fashion. But Bumpkiss on Peacock. Pete Davidson is a maniac. That shit is hilarious. (laughs) I'll check that out. It's... I don't know, bro. It's like Entourage meets Atlanta on Staten Island. <laughs> I, I don't even know how to compare. I, I don't even know what to compare it to, but it's pretty It's pretty wild. It's pretty wild. Uh, so I'm sorry I don't have a social justice cause. I've just been, I just been binging bumpkins. 
That's all I've been doing this week. That's amazing. I mean, who like uh, who who are you fans of as a comic? Like who who maybe not either either from your class or someone from the past. Like who are you just straight up appreciate their work? Uh, some more has what I consider to be one of the best Netflix specials of this year so far. Uh, I'm sure Wanda Sykes is going to give some more run for her money. I haven't seen Wanda's yet. Um, you know, this this is young brother Niles Abston that's making some noise. You know, he's more of a writer director as well. He's you know he's a, he's a Swiss Army knife, but I, I really think that he's got some solid material and he's got a good head on his shoulders. And uh, and the homegirl Paris Sachet. I like Paris too. She's funny. And you know, when doing jokes that are topical in nature or that have like a, a kind of a, a social justice element, what are your thoughts on this notion of of whether you can do jokes that punch up or punch down? I mean, do you make that distinction or should comedy just be about what's fair and what's funny? I think comedy should be whatever's funny to the performer. The audience can decide whether they want to laugh or not. I don't think any performer should be changing what they do and don't say you just have to know that there's certain people aren't going to rock with you certain companies may not work with you certain venues may not book you but i'll always be a supporter of a comedian saying whatever the hell they do whatever want to come out their mouth say that shit for me personally i find more fun in going to unexpected places with punchlines that people wouldn't have predicted so you know that's just how i choose to build my act all right all right well, Roy, I want to say thanks again for taking the time out to do this. We're going to keep this episode short and sweet because I know you've got a lot on your plate, but I want to do a quick plug once again. If you hadn't had a chance, go check out Imperfect Messenger. It's available on Paramount Plus and go see Roy Wood Jr. in person in the next couple months. Roy, I really appreciate what you do. You're a very funny man and uh, I wish you all the best. Hopefully our paths will cross soon. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening and a huge thanks to today's guest for dropping in. If you enjoyed this episode, do us a favor and take a minute to rate, review, follow, or subscribe. This episode of The Plug was executive produced by Peter Buckingham with original theme music by Andrew Van Weingarten and Dan Drohan. Logo design and branding by Italic at www.italic-studio.com. Sound design by Brad Worrell at Soundwag. And you can check out my photography at justinj.com. Thanks again, and be sure to tune in for future conversations.